So what is not a hard topic for me to think about is how foolish I am at times. And so I began to think about that, and there's some uh, uh, interesting stories that I started to recall. Uh, one of my favorites is I was in sixth grade, and I was a crossing guard. So we would go out at lunch and help the kindergartners cross to go home. That's back when you could do this, if you recall. But, and then they would come to school. We'd help them cross the street. And this is a big, bustling town of 12,000 people. So, but I'm having a conversation with the other crossing guards, and we're going back to school during lunch because we're done. And I'm walking. And I finish talking and I turn around and I meet the four by four steel post for the awning of the uh, school. And I understood what a goose egg meant because I woke up in the nurse's office and it was a nice Easter egg goose egg because it was all shades of purple and yellow and green to happen. Sixth grade was not a good year for me. I was going for the monkey bar record. So I was going to go for the distance on the monkey bars. And that was the only bar that was not welded. So I made it. I broke the record. But then my feet went through the monkey bars, and I came down on this wrist and got a nice cast. Some people think I'm foolish because I jumped out of perfectly good airplanes when I was in the military while they were in the air. Um, probably my most embarrassing moments is, is I, was, I was down at Fort Bliss where I was stationed. We actually had government cowboys. Not kidding you. But they would go help other people and... So he's like, you want to come along? I said, sure. So there's three of us, and, and we practiced roping and all this stuff. And we went out to West Texas on a big ranch to help them round up cattle and work cattle and even had chaps on. And it went ching, 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 right? So we're, we're driving the cattle, and we're, we're making them go where they're supposed to go so we can, you know, brand, give, give shots, all those things. And I'm driving this one group, and I'm by myself, and there is this ornery calf that does not want to go with the rest of the cows. And so I'm trying to drive him back into the group, drive him back into the group. He will not go. I say, okay, I've been practicing. And I, I chased him down, and I roped him. I'm like, oh, no. Tied it, tied it off really quick, and you run, run around him, and you trip him. So I tripped him, and I got the rope tight, and I'm going to go. Uh, get the calf, right? My horse says, I'm gone. I'm out of here. So my horse is dragging the calf across. And here I am running across with chaps and, and, and my cowboy boots chasing after him. I'm like, no, nobody saw. Okay. Nobody else was with me. So I've done some foolish things. And I'm sure right now you're remembering all the stories that you've done. Oh, yeah, I did that. For, for If you've had a house and you thought you were all that, and you lost to the garbage disposal, you felt pretty foolish, or plumbing, or electrical. Oh, that's what that means when you touch those wires. All of us can remember, how did that drop of super glue get between my fingers? And there's no acetone. But God turns the word foolish on its head in our text today, because if you think about what the Bible talks about foolishness in Proverbs, Number one book, right? Foolishness. Let's see what it says there. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Awesome. These next three are no particular order. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Guys, you're not off the hook. The foolishness of a man twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. And kids, you're, you're not out of this either. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. 
So the Bible, most of the places, warns us about foolishness. But in our text today, it's gonna, God is going to take that word foolishness and turn it over. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, and I'm going to summarize just the front part of that and give you a little bit of context because it's hard for us to cross that bridge through time all the way back to Corinth, isn't it? And, and some of us are like, where's that? Is that like in southwest Colorado? No, it's all the way over in Greece. Okay, and it was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. This was not something small with, when it comes to people. There were 350 people that were in this city, but there were 460,000, I mean 350,000, 460,000 slaves. So there's almost 800,000 plus residents of that city. And you can't think of the springs, okay? They did not have Model Ts even back then. Okay, you did not go to the used chariot lot to get a chariot. You know, but you have to think 800,000 people crammed into the size like Castle Rock. All right? That's how their lifestyle was back then. They were known for mining and, and creating bronze, all right? But they were also known for their banking business because they had two harbors that, that were there on Corinth. So there was a lot of commerce and a lot of people that came through, all right? A very, very vibrant city. But for some reason, there's a great disparity between the rich and the poor. There was like, for some reason, no middle class that was in this city. And so this is who Paul is talking to, the small church in Corinth that's likely meeting in somebody's house when he begins this letter. And so he, he introduces the letter in verse 1. He says, hey, Paul, I'm writing to you, called by God. My homie Sosthenes is with me. You know, it doesn't say that. I'm summarizing. And we're writing a letter to you. And then he commends the church and and talks to them about uh, who they are. They're sanctified in Christ. They're set apart for holiness. They're called to be saints, called to be holy ones. And then he gives his greeting of grace and peace. He commends the church on the gifts that they're using for one another, how much they know their knowledge and knowing the Lord. But as similar to today, something was going on. Corinth had a problem with cliques. Anybody have a problem with cliques in high school? You know, anything like that? And so there's a problem with cliques that's happening in Corinth, and Paul starts to address that. And it's pretty similar to today. Imagine, you know, we've had, I think, close to 60 people that were baptized between last night and between today, 9 o'clock and 11. Okay, now imagine them out in the foyer, and Pastor Eric was here. Oh, yeah, Pastor Eric baptized me. Yeah, Pastor Robert. Hey, that Norwegian guy, Dan Johnson, he baptized me. Then you get the other, that guy with the stupid beard, he baptized me. I, I don't know why I got number three in the line, but that's where he was at. But they start arguing about who baptized them. They're saying, oh, yeah, Paul baptized me, Apostle Paul. Well, our church pastor, Apollos, he baptized me. And they're arguing about who was baptizing them. And so that's how he begins to, to talk to the church at Corinth. And don't think you're off the hook because we're like, oh, yeah, if you listen to this pastor, this is the pastor of the century. You should listen to him. Oh, yeah, on vacation, I've visited this church, and they greeted me. Is that we'll put some type of quality upon certain things when we don't even need to talk about it in the first place. And so in verse 17, Paul reorients their attention. Because they were worried about status symbols and they forgot something. Verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with 
wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul is emphasizing the point that he was not there to be a member of the church because it's likely the elders did the baptizing. He's an apostle to go plant churches. He did, he did baptize a few, but he wants to bring them back to what's important, but to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And if you notice of how he says it, he says, I didn't use a bunch of different words. I didn't use a lot of words. I wasn't a, 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 a chatty Kathy, talking Tom, all right? Didn't use these $5 words. In fact, let's just take a quiz really quick, right? Anybody know what? Infralapsarianism is? How about supralapsarianism? Anybody? I don't see any hands yet. Because those are words that have to do with Christianity, but it's not something that you're going to hear, hear, hear from the pulpit particularly. And he's saying the gospel of Christ, preaching the gospel, has to be done with simplicity. In the army, and, and likely other branches of the military, you know what the KISS principle is, don't you? Keep it simple, stupid. Just in case you're concerned, you're not calling the other person stupid. You're calling yourself stupid to remind yourself not to complicate things. And as, as a people, humans, we're great at complicating things, aren't we? The biggest thing I found that was a complication, this guy Bertrand Russell, the, ter- the early 1900s, he wants to try to figure out how one plus one equals two. One plus one equals two. You give a kid an apple, you give him another apple, that's two. You take one away, he's back down to one, right? Simple concept. So he researches and he writes this. 372 pages later, as it gets published, and I'm not kidding, you can buy this in three volumes. 372 pages, why one plus one equals two. Our simplest mathematical formula had to be described that long, 372 pages. And Paul is saying we need to keep the truth of the gospel simple. And he explains it with a few simple things as we go through this. And this is where that word foolishness starts to come in. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So the first point is the foolishness of the message. This verse, verse 18, is a balanced verse of contrast. It addressed two groups of people. The first is what? To those who are perishing. Those who are perishing spiritually, this is foolishness. This is dumber than a box of rocks for no purpose. Paul explains why I don't understand later in chapter 2, verse 14. He says that without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, they can't understand those things which are spiritual, but they consider them to be foolish. Why do they think the gospel is foolish? If you watch football, what's the number one verse that's held up on poster board? John 3.16, isn't it? John 3.16. That's the one, the camera will pan across, you'll see it. But nobody likes to memorize verses 18 through 20. Just John 3.16. Well, let's look at what John 3.18 says. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So those who don't believe are perishing. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 19 and 20 really describes what is happening of why they don't believe. In John 3, it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. They who are perishing will rather pursue selfish pleasure of sin instead of a savior. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But they'd rather deny that to pursue what makes them happy today. Romans chapter 1 says they exchanged the truth of God. They exchanged it. They traded it in. They said, I do not want the truth, and they want the lie. Your best life now, doing whatever you want. As you sit here listening to this talking head up here, ask yourself the question, am I rejecting Christ's payment for my sin? But am I rejecting his payment for my sin? Am I rejecting the simplicity of the gospel because I love my addictions? Because I love my immorality? Because I love the choices that I make in my lifestyle that I know are against what God has? I love those things instead of the one who loved me. Can I encourage you to really consider that? Consider the simplicity of the message of the cross and believe. Though this message might seem to be foolishness to the perishing, to those who believe, this message is power and wisdom. And that word power is dynamis, and you might think of dynamite. You know, you put some compounds together, wrap it in cardboard, throw a fuse in it or electrical charge, and what? Boom. But that's all man-made. So I want to blow your mind, no pun intended. Actually, I was intending for that pun. But it means miraculous power. It means something that you cannot do. You cannot put things together. You cannot create it. You cannot do it. It's the power of God in Christ Jesus that salvation is there. And that for us who have faith and believe, that is awesome. That is awesome. He goes on to talk about this in another place. Romans chapter 1 uses the same word. He's in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. To those who believe it is salvation, not salvation from ourselves, but from Christ and what he has done. This faith contrasts wisdom and understanding. To those who are perishing, those who boast in wisdom and knowledge, they think it's foolishness. And one of the first things is, is I can't earn it. I can't work hard enough. I can't do it. God doesn't accept our sacrifice of wisdom and understanding, but of a broken and a contrite heart in dependency upon him. Routine religion does not lead us to the righteousness of Christ. 
You might be here today because that's what you do. I go to church. It makes me feel good about myself and I go home. And the shadow of the cross has no impact upon your life. This is just some nice moral social club. Paul continues in verse 20 to describe why this rejection is here. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Today's terms, we would understand it. Where's the philosopher? Where's the historian? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? No one is going to stand in God's presence based on their wisdom and knowledge. In comparison to the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God, we're foolish. The foolishness of the message is this, is that wisdom and work will not get you to heaven. It's only by faith through the grace of God, and that's it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work hard for it. You can't say, well, if I know this special knowledge, then, it'll, then I'll understand what it is. No. The simplicity of the gospel, keep it simple, is we're sinners, we've rejected God, Christ came, he died for our sins, and he rose again. And you believe that from your nose to your toes, every atom of your being, by faith. And when you're standing before God, you will not be saying, because I did all of these things. But you'll say, because Jesus paid it all. And if you're not there, I plead with you to consider that. Is your temporary satisfaction of today worth eternal separation from God? Is it? And that's where Paul goes next because it's the foolishness of the means in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe Why did God use preaching? Why did God use people telling other people the simplicity, the foolishness of the message of grace and faith? Why did he do that? Romans 1, again, gives us our answer. Starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. From the beginning, God has revealed himself to mankind. But they did what? No, don't want it. Don't need it. There's no excuse. And we didn't last too long, did we? Because if you reflect back on this pursuit of stupidity, Genesis chapter 6 comes along, doesn't it? Six chapters into the Bible, and the the depravity and evilness of man is so great, the worship 
of idols, prolific God's wrath comes. So there you have Noah, right, in the ark. But Second Peter talks about Noah. It says that he was a preacher of righteousness. Imagine him there, okay? There he is, whatever it looks like, mud huts and roofs, who knows. And he starts building this ark, but he's a preacher as well. He says, repent, for God's judgment is coming. It's going to rain. What, what is that word that he used? Rain? What is that? Is that like the name of his kid? What is rain? What is rain? God is going to send water from the heavens and break up the deep, and this is what's going to happen. Water? We don't get any water from up there. You know, and I doubt that they had it back then, but they were probably saying, Noah, he is smoking crack. The foolishness of the preaching. For somebody to proclaim the king is coming and you better settle accounts with God today through Jesus Christ or you're going to give an answer for it. That somebody who stands up here, that somebody at your workplace that you talk to, that your only hope in this life is through Jesus Christ. That is it. Your pay raise to $15 an hour is not going to matter. None of it. And that even if I have to be a fool so that you listen and that you don't make an eternal decision, that you harden your heart and you go to hell because you think that you're going to stand before God and shake your fist and say, I, I did it all. You're not. In case you wonder, there's no snowboarding in hell. There's no party with your friends. None of that. So not only is it the foolishness of the message that you need Jesus Christ, but God uses the foolishness of the means of preaching. And don't think you're off the hook. It doesn't mean that you're up here standing. That word preaching, kerygma, means to proclaim, to herald, to come before the king comes back and tell everybody he's coming. And you need to have faith and belief so that you're not judged, but you're welcomed into God's presence forever. As he continues, he says in verse 22 of why they reject this preaching. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Jews and the Greeks pursued foolishness. The Jews wanted a visible sign, but they just throw in the trash, Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant. In fact, I doubt you'll find a synagogue today that reads through Isaiah 53. Why? Because it seems like you're reading about Jesus Christ. The Greeks, it's all about what you know. Even Paul went and talked to him at Athens and talked to him about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and half of them, more than half, said, you're crazy. This guy thinks that dead people come back to life. You know? They didn't have this TV show Walking Dead back then, just in case you wondered. But they thought he was crazy. The Jews balked at admitting the sign of the Messiah fulfilled, and when they talked to Christ about it, he says, it's already been given to you. And he references the story of Jonah. He says, as Jonah was in the great fish, so was the son of man. 
what? He was in there three days. Jesus was in the grave three days. Is that there was already signs through Scripture given to him in prophecy. They came to him and asked him again, and he says, a perverse generation seeks after signs. A perverse. That sounds pretty familiar today, doesn't it? Crooked as all get out. And just to make it personal, who here has been to our newcomer's luncheon? Raise your hand. Let's do it this way. Who hasn't been to our newcomer's luncheon? Raise your hand. Okay, I'll see you next time. I know all of your faces. But it was a newcomer's lunch about two years ago, and everybody had laughed, and there was one gentleman that was still there. So I, I go over to talk to him, and he's a lieutenant in the Army, Transportation Corps, and I'm talking to him. And he tells me a story about what happens. And so he has a house with three other lieutenants, three other guys. You know, they're saving money, you know, just in case to get lucky and get married later. And there, and. He was just in the front room with his friend, and this was like Friday, and, this, and I'm talking to him Sunday. He's just in the front room with his other lieutenant, and he walks into his bedroom, and he hears a bang. His friend committed suicide right in the room next to him. And I'm talking to him about the grace of God, how God does not cause these things. There's hope in Jesus Christ, not just in this world. You know what he does while I'm sitting up in the cafe? He takes one of those napkin holders, puts it right there. He says, if God will move that across the table, I'll believe. Not for the fact that he came to this church at random. Not to the fact that one of the pastors sat down and talked to him. Not to the fact of what the truth was. He moves that napkin holder, I'll believe. Being deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, I saw it so often that glory is given to God and changed just like that. Guys would get in precarious situations Harry situations that are they're like, man, we should have died. I do not know why we did not die. And they're like, God protect us, man, because we should have been wiped out. That that IED should have hit us. That roadside bomb should have hit us. Nobody got hurt, not even a scratch. Man, God really protected us. Guess what they say three days later? Man, we were really lucky. And it totally exchanges the truth of God being active to the lie of blind chance. Our culture is no different than today, seeking after science, seeking after special knowledge to think that that is the answer, but it's the foolishness of preaching, the simplicity of the message. And then we have a transitional word, but. But to those who are called, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. To think it's all in what Jesus has done, not in what we do. The power, the wisdom is in what he has done, his work on the cross, and for us to tell others. So why is Christ's wisdom and power of God? Why is Christ the wisdom and power of God? Why do we preach and proclaim the gospel? Look in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in comparison with God, if we were even, if he were foolish, just if, so just scenario, if God was foolish, we're still a bunch of idiots. If God was weak, okay, not omnipotent, not all-powerful, if God was weak, we're all scrawny. 
And he's using that word picture to show that nothing can contend with God. In fact, Job, God asked Job, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer. To think that you're smarter, stronger than God, get real. In fact, you have a choice today, either to bow your knee today or it's going to happen later. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why do we tell others? Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we act foolish up here on the stage so that you might listen to the truth of what Jesus Christ has done? Because God is God, and we want you to know him today, not when it's too late. That is why we tell our neighbor. That is why we tell our coworker. That's why we talk to our friends from the past, or even here. I'm not going to take for granted that anybody here doesn't know who Jesus Christ is. Christian believer, does the simplicity of the gospel and the fact that God is God in your life inspire and propel you to share with others? Or do you cast a shadow across the, across the cross so that nobody knows instead of letting it impact you? I ain't going to do that. I ain't going to tell them. Holy Spirit's telling them, here, you need to tell them about the hope in Jesus Christ. No, I can't do that. It should impact us to tell others. So we've talked about the what? The foolishness of the message, the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what he's done. We've talked about how? Preaching, talking, telling, sharing with others. But we haven't talked about who. Look in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Church of Corinth was not the up and coming of Corinth. They were not popular people because he says, hey, not, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. So he's talking about that congregation. And even here, do we have any presidents in here, ex-presidents, any governors? No. Anybody that has started a university? No. And I know some of you and the things that you've done and the things that you do even now. But we're regular Joes, regular Janes, the same as the Church of Corinth. This is who he uses. In fact, if you think about it, God likes to use inadequate people. He does. So think about a few stories. Gideon. Angel Lord comes. Obro is scared and hiding in a in the wine vat, hiding. And then he has this conversation with the angel of the Lord. He says, okay, but I need a sign. And he does the sign of getting the fleece dry, wet, dry, wet, dry, dry, wet, something like that. 
He says, okay, I'll follow you. And he raises a 10,000-man army to go fight the Midianites, I think. 10,000, going to go fight them. All right? And he hits one point, and they have to get a drink at this river. And God says, hold on. Whoever drinks water like this, this is who you get to keep. Everybody else, you need to send them home. We go from 10,000, 10,000 man army to how many? 300. I'm going to go fight with 300 people. They look like Pee Wee Herman, not Arnold Schwarzenegger. 300. King David. I want you to think about him. Well, he was King David. Iron. He's a king. Well, how are you saying he's inadequate? You need to go back before he was a king, okay, when he's like 11. Because he got anointed as king when Saul failed, when he was still at home with dad. God sends Samuel. Samuel, go to this house. I'll tell you who's going to be the king. He goes through. So big old Eliab comes out. Oh, yeah, this guy looks like he should be the king. Nope. He goes right down David's brother's. Gets to the last one, they think. And Samuel's like, this is none of these. None of these guys are, like, are king according to the Lord. Is there somebody else? Oh, yeah, the runt. The runt's out there watching the sheep. Go get him. They go get David, and Samuel anoints David as king. He's like 11 or 12. If you're 11 or 12, raise your hand. Okay, going to be king. And then what happens? Dad's like, hey, go get your bro some MREs. I mean, some bread and, bread and cheese, right? And he takes him and he takes bread and cheese to him, right? And Goliath comes out across the, the valley there or whatever, and he makes this proclamation. And David's like, what is wrong with you wimps? How come you're not going to go kick his can because he's defiling the name of the Lord? And you've got a snot-nosed, sarcastic teenager rebuking the army of Israel. And they tell him, shut up. Go away. No, I'm going to go do this. Okay, let's set you up. And so he puts on what? He puts on Saul's armor. He gets a sword. And can you imagine a 13-year-old with like 50 pounds of equipment? He says, I can't take this. This stuff isn't mine. I'm not tested with this. I can't take it. Goes to the creek. Picks up five stones, right? I think it's for Goliath and his four other brothers. Five stones, and he's got a sling, a leather thong with a little pocket about this long. It's Goliath, takes his own sword, cuts his head off. 13-year-old, leader of an army, going to be king. Pretty inadequate. But he had the power and wisdom of God with him. Paul, the Apostle Paul. God says, I'm going to take the persecutor of the Christians and take him and make him the apostle to start churches. The foolishness of the messenger is this, is you cannot say, God chose me because I'm all that. God chooses things that are inadequate that are helpless, that are broken, to use all of those people to use you, to use me, people that the world calls foolish, to talk to them, to tell them what they consider is a foolish message, that their only hope in this life is Jesus Christ. 
Okay, Dan, you've told me. Foolish message, foolish means, foolish messenger. But why is God saying all of these things about foolishness? Look at verse 29 again. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God's economy of activity towards mankind is based off of his love for those he created. And that response is one of worship towards him. We see that Jesus is the one that is complete. If you look at the things that he does, is that we glory in him because his righteousness is put upon us. His perfection is put upon us when we have faith in him. He sanctifies us or sets us apart in holiness. He redeems us. He breaks the chains of the bondage of slavery of sin to be enslaved no more. He's the one that does these things. We're being perfected by the power of the Spirit, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Some of us is second by second, isn't it? But it's Him. We will be redeemed when He returns. As I close, this song will be familiar. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. If you're over 40, you'll probably know this song. If you're under 40, just ask somebody over 40 or Google it. You know, they know they knows the answer for all of that. And it's a very catchy tune, and it's a very popular song, okay? But I want you to listen to the words because that's what escapes us at times. And I think it is very fitting of our culture today. But it's 1969, Frank Sinatra, My Way. Listen to the words. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall and did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing. To think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. And even our fast food culture says the same thing. If you go through Burger King and you hear their slogan, have it your way. Have it your way. You have to do something with what you've heard this morning. You're going to have to process it. And so some things I would ask that you think about, believers, 
as you think about this, is are you keeping the message of the cross simple? Jesus came, he died, he paid for your sins. All you have to do is have faith and believe. The means of preaching, proclaiming that, is not just the pastor. It's all of us. God uses us to tell others the truth of that gospel. If you've been silent or fearful, may you pray for boldness, even as the early church did. Peter and John are in prison, and they're praying for them, and they ask for the boldness to share the gospel because they understood the cost. And it says the Holy Spirit came into that room and filled them with boldness to go share the gospel. We are all responsible to tell others of what our Savior has done. Skeptics, unbelievers, I'll just be straight. You're not going to do it your way. God is God and it's his way. Or like another popular song as you're on the highway to hell. Because it's pretty broad and it's pretty easy to travel. But I want you to understand what God's way is. Let's go back and think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do you understand that in verse 17? God did not send Jesus with a, a hammer to judge. God gave his son because he loved you. But as you've heard, there comes a time of reckoning. What are you to do? Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Unbelievers, if I look foolish, I don't care. The simplicity of it is, is repent. Turn away from your selfish lifestyle to live the way God has for you. Confess those sins of rebellion, defiance against him. Confess them and ask for forgiveness because they've been paid for by Jesus Christ. Believe that he rose from the dead, that now he's large and in charge of your life. You're not going to work it. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to know too much. It's the simplicity of faith. So I encourage you to think about those things. We'll have a ministry team up here. If you just need prayer, you ask somebody next to you to pray for you. You don't have to come up here. It might be for the boldness to share the gospel. If you don't believe and you want to know what faith in Jesus Christ really means, come forward. One of them will talk to you about that. But don't throw this in the forgetful bin. Do something with the word of God today. Let's stand and close in worship as I pray. Father, we do pray that your word would go. Continue to go and to continue to minister to the hearts and minds of those that are here. And we don't take for granted anything, but we are so humbled by your love and the fact that you've sent Christ for us. Some of us really grasp that grace even on a daily basis. May you forgiveness of our silence. 
May you give us forgiveness. May we truly grasp the power and the wisdom that are in Christ because of what he's done. I just ask for anybody that's contemplating salvation of true faith in Jesus Christ, that you would move them, that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak to their hearts and minds because what can be known of you has been told to them. May you accept our sacrifice of worship even now as we recall your great love for us, the things that you have done for us, the things that you are doing, and the things we look forward to at the return of Jesus. So we give you all glory, we give you all praise and the testimony of what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.